I wonder how many of you have ever had the experience of going somewhere that you used to love only to find out that it's not nearly as good as it once was. For uh, about eight or nine years, my family, we lived in, in the city of Montreal, one of the great uh, Canadian cities, and I still sometimes miss uh, the experience of living in Montreal, especially the, the, the wonderful restaurants in the city of Montreal, some of the best cuisine that you can find anywhere. And uh, one of our favorite uh, restaurants in the city was a popular Indian buffet called the Maharaja. It was uh, famous for, uh, for locals. It was, it was probably one of the best restaurants in the city at that time. We often went there on special occasions or uh, when family and friends would come visit us in the city. That's one of the top places where we would take them. Well, a few years ago, after we'd moved to Welland, we, we went back to Montreal for a few days on a family vacation. We returned to this buffet, much anticipation, you know, nostalgia uh, in our hearts for the good days in Montreal, and to our great disappointment, it was not the same. The restaurant, which had a, a nice, beautiful location, it had been uh, relegated into the basement, this dark, dingy basement of the same building, the seating reduced by half of what it once was. The uh, buffet selection had been reduced by at least half, and it was cold, and the quality was not good, and it was obvious something something terrible had happened. <laughs> and uh, the glory days were gone. We said, Ichabod, you know, the glory has departed. Um, and I, I honestly can't remember even if we stayed uh, stayed there and ate or if we looked elsewhere for greener grass. But out of curiosity this week, I just looked it up on TripAdvisor, and what I found was uh, about 20 or 30 reviews, all with people the same experience, lamenting the, the downfall of this once great restaurant, and even a few reviews like the one up on the screen, celebrating the day that it was finally closed down. This was a day of great gladness in the city of Montreal. One of the best restaurants in the city that ended off as one of the worst. Well, today, friends, as we continue along in our study of First Kings, we're not considering the high watermark of a once great restaurant. We're considering today the high watermark of a once great nation. The glory days of ancient Israel reaching their peak during the first half of Solomon's reign. And so this morning in these chapters of the Old Testament, we are going to see Israel at her very best. And in the new year, when we pick up in this series again, we're going to discover that things quickly fell apart. And that Israel ended in disarray and that this sets the scene actually for a surprise ending in God's grander story. That it sets the scene for the arrival of a greater king and for the promise of a greater kingdom. And so with that introduction, let's open our Bibles and turn to 1 Kings chapter 9. We will learn today about the high watermark of ancient Israel. Now this morning as we are moving forward in this sermon series, we consider the pinnacle of Solomon's 40-year reign. We're going to do so under four main headings. We consider first of all Solomon's warning meaning a warning given to King Solomon, Solomon's warning, secondly, Solomon's wealth, thirdly, Solomon's worship, and then fourthly and finally, Solomon's witness. So that's where we're heading today with the help of our God, a warning, and then wealth, worship, 
and witness. And so let's begin our time in the Word this morning with a look at Solomon's warning. And we find this warning in the first nine verses of chapter 9. 1 Kings 9, and we're going to begin by reading verses 1 to 9. Hear then the word of the Lord. Now it happened when Solomon had completed building the house of Yahweh and the king's house, and all that Solomon desired to do, that Yahweh appeared to Solomon a second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. Yahweh said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication which you've made before me. I have set apart as holy this house which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness to do according to all that I've commanded you and will keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised your father David, saying, you shall not have a man cut off from the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have given before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And the house which I have set apart as holy for my name, I will cast out of my presence. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will feel desolate and hiss and say, Why has Yahweh done thus to the land and to his house? And they will say, because they forsook Yahweh their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and took hold of other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, Yahweh has brought all this calamity upon them. The past number of weeks here at our church, we have been looking at this extended section of text dealing with construction, dealing with decoration and furnishing the construction of the temple and the construction of Solomon's own palace in Jerusalem. The early chapters of 1 Kings are dominated by the theme of temple building. And uh, last Lord's Day, we looked at Solomon's prayer of dedication, this beautiful example of godly leadership. As King Solomon, the highest magistrate in the land, exalts the Lord before the people. And reminds them of the law of God and calls them to covenant faithfulness. Solomon's prayer, as we saw last week, takes into consideration the reality of human sin. It anticipates future times of national disobedience. Times in which the people will break covenant with the Lord. And in so doing, will come under God's heavy hand of discipline. King Solomon was not naive about the reality of sin in the world. His prayer reflects in detail upon God's law. And so he speaks there about the blessings that come through obedience to the law, the curses that come on a nation from rebellion and sin. And throughout the prayer, Solomon warns the people about the consequences of covenant breaking, even as he reassures them of God's merciful and forgiving nature. He says to them several times that, That when they sin, if they repent, that they will experience God's mercy and God's restoration. As the king of Israel, Solomon had a word of instruction for the subjects under his care. Now in the opening portion of chapter 9, we learn that it's God's turn to speak 
to the king. The king speaks to God, and now God speaks back to the king. The Lord answers Solomon, and he gives Solomon the same type of warning that Solomon has just given to the people. Sometimes when we preachers preach, we, we also need someone to preach the same message to us. And that's the type of thing that is, is happening here. God is now warning Solomon in the same way that he warned the people, a warning not to break covenant, not to fall into patterns of sinful disobedience. These opening verses of chapter 9 are quite remarkable. We're told here that the Lord appears to Solomon a second time. How many people in the Bible had one appearance of the Lord? Solomon has two, two appearances of the Lord. This is going to make his, his sin in the next portion of the book far more grievous. Two appearances of the Lord. The first appearance occurred back in chapter 3 where we read the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream and he offered King Solomon anything that he would ask. And in response to God's offer, Solomon asked for the wisdom he needs to wisely govern the nation, to benefit the nation as a whole. This earnest, godly request coming from a humble heart and it greatly pleased the Lord, so much so that the Lord not only grants Solomon's request for wisdom, he gives him also wealth and honor which are the things that most people would have asked for in the first place. And now in chapter 9, at the temple's completion, God appears a second time to King Solomon. And God has appeared this second time because he wants the king to know that his prayer has been heard. His prayer has been heard and answered. The temple that has been completed will be a visible token of God's presence on earth. This little piece of real estate now and henceforth to be viewed as holy ground. God had heard Solomon's prayer and the temple in Jerusalem had met with God's approval. But just as Solomon spoke a word of promise and a word of warning to the people of Israel, so now God speaks a word of promise and warning to the king. There's promise and warning here. The the word of promise coming in verse 4, and this is a restatement of an earlier promise given to King David. And uh, we often refer to this promise as the Davidic covenant. Davidic covenant. Second Samuel 7, God's promise to establish David's throne and lineage forever. David said, God, I want to build you a house. And God says, David, I'm going to build you a house. Your son will build the house for me, but I'm going to build a house for you. And now God renews the promise and covenant with King Solomon. But you'll notice here, interestingly, God renews the covenant with Solomon in conditional terms. That uh, this passage is filled with ifs and thens. If Solomon remains steadfast in his devotion to the Lord, if Solomon follows in the footsteps of his father David, if Solomon becomes a man after God's own heart, if these conditions are met, then God promises Solomon, your throne and your dynasty will be established forever. And so this is the promise that God makes to Solomon. God will dwell among the people of Israel. God will establish Solomon's throne forever if Solomon remains faithful, if Solomon keeps covenant with the Lord. But having encouraged Solomon with this promise that was given to his father, the Lord turns now in verses 6 to 9 to the warning portion. 
a word of warning for the king. Just as Solomon warned the people about the penalty of disobedience, God now warns Solomon as the king. And I believe that this is a very sobering and indeed a foreboding foreshadowing of trouble to come. This is foreboding. Just as Solomon seemed to know that the people of Israel would one day break covenant with God and they would turn away from obedience, so it seems that the Lord knew, and indeed we know God is omniscient, He did know, but God knew that this would happen with Solomon. It wouldn't just be the people, it would be the king. And so the first warning given by God, a warning about Israel's claim on the land of promise. God warns Solomon, if you break covenant, it will result in the loss of your land inheritance. Indeed, those of us who have read ahead in the Old Testament know what happened in the course of Israel's history. The kings did break covenant, not once or twice, time and time and time again. And the nation apostatized. And they plunged headlong into gross idolatry. And eventually God sends them into exile. And they lose the land of promise. And that loss of land does not end after 70 years. It continues right straight into the New Testament era. Israel, a remnant, returns to the land during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. But do they possess it? No, they're not possessing it. They're living in it, but they are living under the boot of these foreign oppressors and kings. They are in the land, but they do not possess the land as they had done previously under King Solomon. God tells Solomon, the price of disobedience will be the loss of your land. And in verse 8, he extends the warning. He says, Solomon, it's not just going to be the land of promise. It's going to be the temple that sits in this land. He says to Solomon, this house, this temple will become a heap of ruins. And everyone who passes by will feel desolate and hiss. We'll say, why has Yahweh done this to his house? Think forward to the time of Nehemiah. You remember those two fine fellows, Sanballat and Tobiah, who hiss and mock as they try to rebuild the walls in the temple. They say even if a fox runs on top of it, it'll fall over. These guys glory in the desolation of Jerusalem. They do not want to see the city rebuilt from the ashes. That was part of the warning that God gave to Solomon. It was part of the cost of disobedience. He warned Solomon about the land. He warned Solomon about the temple. In verse 5, he warned Solomon about the survival of his own dynasty. And he says, Solomon, the, the unbroken continuation of the Davidic kingship depends upon the faithfulness of the Davidic kings. There is a a sense in which the Davidic covenant is unconditional in the macro sense that God would indeed preserve an heir for David. We know that. In fact, if you read 2 Samuel 7, the covenant is given in unconditional terms. And interestingly, you read here in 1 Kings 9, it's given in conditional terms. So what is it? Is it conditional or is it unconditional? Well, it's both. It's both. It's unconditional in the macro sense and it's conditional in the micro sense. Indeed, 
What happened during the time of exile? Were there still kings reigning and ruling in Israel during the time of exile? No, there was not. From the time of exile, straight through to the time of Jesus Christ, Israel is without a legitimate king. And they have the Herods, who are descendants of Esau, ruling over them. And they have the Romans ruling over them. But no, they do not have a legitimate king reigning on the throne after the time of the exile. The warnings issued from the mouth of the Lord all come to pass in the course of Israel's history, just like all of the warnings and curses that Solomon himself mentioned to the people in his prayer. The covenant breaking of Israel's kings, the apostasy of the nation as a whole, led to devastating consequences. It would be good for Canadians to read this text. The loss of land, the loss of the temple, the loss of the Davidic throne, the loss of dignity and honor among the pagan nations. A nation that breaks covenant with the Lord. In just a few weeks, we're going to see from God's Word how well Solomon fared in the latter years of his life. It's not going to be encouraging. We're done with the encouragement in the book of Kings. This is the high watermark. This is as good as it got in ancient Israel. And from this point on in our study of First and Second Kings, indeed the rest of the Old Testament, it's going to be one disappointment after another. It's uh, kind of like when you turn 40 years old. It's all downhill from here, right? Not really. Well, friends, as we consider this morning, the high watermark of Israel's monarchy is represented in Solomon. You may be interested to know Solomon wrote at least one of the Psalms. Solomon wrote Psalm 72, this Psalm reflecting on the idealized portrait of the king's earthly dominion and authority. And Psalm 72 paints a picture of a nation in covenant with God, the king and his subjects living in obedience to the law of God, experiencing the blessings of God's grace. Psalm 72. Do you know what's very interesting? It was Psalm 72, the psalm that was written by King Solomon at the high watermark of his reign, is the psalm that the founding fathers of Canada chose as a vision for this nation. That the dominion of Canada, that word dominion, of Canada taken from Psalm 72, his dominion from sea to sea. That was the vision of the founders of this nation, and it came from this era of Solomon's life. I'm not going to read the whole psalm for you this morning, but you can read it later this afternoon. Just take it in, this idealized picture of a nation in covenant with God. And it was indeed partially realized during the time of Solomon. Solomon experienced that to a degree. In the early part of his reign, Solomon functions as a type of Christ. Do you know that word, type? It just means that he's a shadow. He he foreshadows Christ. He pictures Christ. Israel in the Old Testament is a type of God's kingdom. A foreshadowing of God's eternal kingdom. It is a glimmer of of the future eschaton. A glimmer of the future eschaton. Israel is a brief manifesting of God's supreme glory upon the earth. 
Why did Solomon write Psalm 72? He wrote Psalm 72 because Solomon believed that the psalm was being fulfilled in his lifetime and through his ministry as God's appointed king. But we're going to discover in weeks to come that this idealized portrait painted in Psalm 72, it was never fully realized at any point in Israel's history. Not at the high water mark. Never in Israel's history. Solomon probably thought he was writing that psalm about himself and his kingdom. In actual fact, Solomon was writing primarily about someone else. He probably thought he was writing about himself. He was primarily writing about someone else, about Jesus Christ. He was writing prophecy. It is a prophetic Psalm about the future king who would come through David's line, who would rule and reign with perfect wisdom and power, whose kingdom would have no end, would never be destroyed. We might also think in this respect about Psalm chapter 2, describing in vivid language the authority given to Solomon and to the Davidic lineage of kings. Like Psalm 72, Psalm chapter 2 envisions the king of Israel ruling over the nations of earth with a rod of iron and that Israel's lineage of kings would enjoy the favor and protection of God himself who would terrify their enemies in his wrath. Go before them in terrifying their enemies. This psalm, Psalm chapter 2, was also partially fulfilled during the time of Solomon. But was it fully fulfilled? No, it wasn't. We know from our vantage point in history, Psalm 72, Psalm chapter 2 are pointing forward towards Christ. They're pointing forward even from our vantage point towards the consummation of God's kingdom. That the kingdom is already here, but it's coming in greater fullness. It will one day fill the entirety of the earth. Another passage in the Old Testament teaching the same truth, and we read this often during the Advent season, is Isaiah 9. The prophet Isaiah describes a king greater than Solomon, a kingdom that will increase until it eventually fills the whole earth. And you know these words very well. Isaiah 9 verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Some the kingship of Christ. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. Could we say that about Solomon? The Mighty God? Could we say that about Hezekiah? No, we can't. The Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Listen to this. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. That that this is a government that once established it, It is expected to increase upon the throne of David, upon his kingdom, to order it, to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So God renews the covenant promise with Solomon and issues at the same time a warning. Obedience will result in national blessing. Disobedience will result in disinheritance. And as good a king as Solomon really was in the early years of his life, and he was a good king. He was a good king. 
we know now that something greater than Solomon was on the way. Something greater than Solomon is here. He was a type. He was a foreshadowing of something greater to come. This perfect king who will perfectly keep covenant. His active obedience to God's moral law. This king will have a realm that will not only include one little strip of land in the Middle East. His kingdom fills the earth. The heavens and the earth. Well, let's move forward then. Solomon's warning, verses 1-9. to We move forward now to look at Solomon's wealth. Look back at your Bibles with me. We'll read verses 10-28. to 10 to 28. Now it happened at the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of Yahweh and the king's house. Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress, timber and gold, according to all his desire. That king Solomon then gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. So Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him. And they were not right in his eyes. He said, What are these cities you have given me, my brother? So they were called the land of Kabul to this day. And Hiram sent to the king 120 talents of gold. Now this is the account of the forced labor which Solomon raised up to build the house of Yahweh, his own house, the Milo, the wall of Jerusalem, Hatsor, Megiddo, and Gezer. For Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire and killed the Canaanites who lived in the city. And had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuilt Gezer and the lower Beit Horon. And Baalath and Tamar in the wilderness in the land of Judah. And all the storage cities which Solomon had and the cities for his chariots, the cities for his horsemen, all that Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon in the land under his rule. As for all the people who are left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who are not of the sons of Israel, namely their sons who are left after them in the land, whom the sons of Israel were unable to devote to destruction, from them Solomon raised up forced laborers to this day. But Solomon did not make slaves of the son of Israel, for they were men of war, his servants, his princes, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. These were the chief deputies who were over Solomon's work, 550 who had dominion over the people doing the work. As soon as Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David to her house, which Solomon had built for her, then he built the millow. And three times a year, Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar, which he built to Yahweh, burning incense with them on the altar, which was before Yahweh. So he finished the house. King Solomon also made a fleet of ship from ships in Ezion Geber, which is near El- Elot, the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent his servants with the fleet of ships, sailors who knew the sea along with the servants of Solomon. They went to Ophir and took from there 420 talents of gold and brought it to King Solomon. Now skip ahead to chapter 10, verse 14. Chapter 10, verse 14, it says, The weight of gold which came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Besides that, from the traders, the wares of the merchants, and all the kings of the Arabs and the governors of the country, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold using 600 shekels of gold on each shield. He made 300 shields of beaten gold using three minas of gold on each shield. 
The king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with refined gold. There were six steps to the throne and a round top to the throne at its rear, and arms on each side of the seat and two lions standing beside the arms. Twelve lions were also standing there on the six steps on the one side and on the other. Nothing like it was made for all the other kingdoms. Now all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. All the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. None was of silver. It was not considered valuable in the days of Solomon. For the king had at sea the ships of Tarshish with the ships of, of Hiram. Once every three years the ships of Tarshish came carrying gold and silver, ivory, apes and peacocks. So Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And all the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. They brought every man his present articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, and mules, a set amount year by year. Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen and stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. The king also made silver as plentiful as stones in Jerusalem. He made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the Shephelah. Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew. The king's merchants procured them from Kew for a price. And a chariot was imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver, a horse for 150. And by the same means they exported them to the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram. Well, thus far we have been focusing in our message on the spiritual wealth and blessing that comes from living in covenant obedience to God. But you'll notice the majority of teaching contained in these two chapters is it's meant to impress upon us as the readers the immense wealth, the immense prosperity that God had poured out upon this man and upon the nation. As you read through these verses, you, you, you cannot help but get the impression Solomon was doing all right. His, uh, his salary was acceptable. The treasury of Israel was filling up. God was blessing them. God was prospering the nation. Under Solomon's leadership, Israel had gone from being a tribal coalition of former slaves to an incredibly wealthy, powerful nation. They had risen during Solomon's time to the upper echelon. So it's one of the great nations of earth at this point in terms of its power and wealth. In previous chapters, we encountered King Hiram of Tyre. He supplied all the, the cedar lumber that was used in the palace and in the temple. And maybe you thought before that, that Solomon and Hiram were peers. They were good buddies. They were on equal footing with one another as two ancient kings. What's the impression that we get here of Hiram? Hiram and Solomon are not on equal footing with one another. Hiram is a vassal. Solomon has the upper hand. Verse 11 of chapter 9, we're told that in addition to all the cedar lumber, Hiram is also supplying the gold that Solomon needs for his projects. And in exchange for all of that gold, Solomon decides to give Hiram a number of border cities. The, the cities that, that weren't all that great. And Hiram knew it. He, he, 
he, he actually diplomatically complains about it. He says, why, why did you give me these worthless cities? And in spite of all of his whining, we read in the very next verse that he, he then gave Solomon more gold. <laughs> he complains and then he gives Solomon more gold. Later on, chapter 9, we read how Hiram was involved in the acquisition and shipping of gold from a faraway place called Ophir. And you'll notice uh, it was Hiram's ships that carried the gold, and they weren't carrying it back to Tyre. His ships were carrying the gold and were bringing it directly to Israel. And so what's the picture here that we get in terms of Solomon? He, he He is exerting authority over the other kings. This is a partial fulfillment once again of Psalm chapter 2. The king of Israel exerting authority over all of the other kings of earth. This is the high watermark of Israel's international influence. But in addition to Solomon's dominance over foreign kings, we see him dominating the various Canaanite groups that were still living in the land. Now, to understand the significance of this section of text, verses 15 to 28, you have to think back to the time of Joshua. You have to keep in mind the command that God had given to his people when they entered the promised land. What were they supposed to do? They were supposed to clear the land out. Get rid of all of the Canaanite idolaters. Execute God's righteous vengeance upon these wicked people. A lot of people say, oh, the poor Canaanites. These were extraordinarily wicked people. Extraordinarily wicked people. And God's judgment was ripe to fall upon them. Israel's marching orders were to entirely dispossess the Canaanites. They were to occupy the land of promise. We know from the books of Joshua and Judges, they were only partially successful in that venture. Instead of obeying God's command, they they decided it would be okay to coexist with these idolatrous tribes. And what happened as a result of that? Well, they disobeyed God and they, they, they faced the consequences of their own stupidity. They began worshiping the gods of these foreign wicked tribes and they begin to imitate their ways. The remaining Canaanite tribes became a thorn in Israel's side, a source of great military Concerned during the time of David and Saul, we read about the Philistines living on the Mediterranean coast, oppressing the Israelites and coming to dominate vast regions of the promised land. And so the picture that we get from the time of the judges to the time of Solomon is that Israel is the one being dominated. Israel is the one being bullied. Israel is the one being pushed around by these Canaanite tribes. It says at one point, I mean, this is how pathetic it got. During the reign of King Saul, there's only two swords in the land. One in Saul's hand and one in Jonathan's hand. And that was the only weapons available in the land. We're not living in the first country that sought to disarm its citizens. But you'll notice from the time of Solomon in 1 Kings, we no longer hear a peep about the Philistines. Where'd they go? Well, they were conquered. Solomon conquered them. The previous generation, David conquered Jerusalem from the Jebusites. Chapter 9, Solomon continues in that same trajectory. He captures, he fortifies these Canaanite cities and 
He, he turns the remaining inhabitants into slaves. Although Solomon did it, at times conscript his own people for building projects, the primary source of hard labor in Israel during the time of Solomon came from the Canaanites. The enemies of God, the enemies of Solomon, and he had conquered them. And so we see in 1 Kings 9 a snapshot, Solomon accomplishing what Joshua and the judges failed to do. Under Solomon's leadership, Israel had subjugated her enemies. There is a national security. It's the phrase we would use. There was a national security in Israel that the previous generations had not known. In this sense, we see in Solomon's reign a partial fulfillment of Psalm 110. The psalmist says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. We read these chapters. We are impressed with Solomon's authority over foreign kings like Hiram of Tyre. We, we are impressed with his authority over God's ancient Enemies, the Canaanites who remained in the land. By far the biggest impression that we readers come away with here in these chapters is the immense amount of wealth and money that Solomon acquired. And commentators say, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's probably a little bit of both. God did promise Solomon, by the way, at chapter 3 that he was going to make him wealthy. So this is, in part, this is God's fulfillment of his promise to Solomon. On the other hand, we know how wealth can easily become a temptation and a snare. That the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You'll notice one of the words that appears most frequently in these chapters is the word gold. That's intentional, by the way. Gold, gold, gold. It's repeated over and over again. It says, Solomon's annual revenue was 666 talents of gold. Don't get too uh, excited about that, prophecy gurus. I don't think there's anything significant in the 666 talents of gold, although you could probably write a book on it and get rich. Um, 666 talents of gold. Do you know how much gold that is? I looked it up. That's 22 tons of gold. 22 tons per year. That is extravagant. (laughs) An utterly extravagant, unimaginable amount of money. Solomon, to, to put it bluntly, Solomon was filthy rich. And the text goes on to emphasize Israel's unbridled prosperity. There is so much gold in the land of Israel at this time that silver is like stones. It's as valuable as rocks. Has no value. In addition to these billions upon billions of dollars in gold, Solomon is importing other exotic goods. This is interesting. Solomon builds a zoo. He's got apes. He's got peacocks. He's got other exotic animals. He's getting spices and tea and fruit from all of these foreign places. Do you know guys that Today, in the 21st century, we live like kings. Do you understand that? Indoor plumbing? I was just thinking about this. I was reading about this. Uh, 
we we can spend 20 bucks and go down to Stevensville and see apes and peacocks, right? We we can spend two bucks. Leslie knows one of my things I love to do. I wait for pineapple to come on sale, and then I buy a bunch of it. I love I love pineapple. But just think about that. You go to uh, Food Basics and you buy a pineapple for two dollars. Like in the ancient world, to get tea, to get pineapple, all that stuff had to, had to be imported. This was not accessible to the common man. You remember at the beginning of his reign, God promises that he will make Solomon wealthy and wise. This is a fulfillment of that covenant promise. God blesses the king extravagantly, blesses the nation extravagantly. God has, throughout the course of history, and I'm not suggesting that modern nations are in covenant with God in this exactly the way that ancient Israel was. But we see this pattern in history that when nations follow God's ways, God blesses nations. God blesses nations that submit to God's moral law. This is a foreshadowing of God's eternal kingdom of which Israel was just a brief and limited glimpse And Isaiah the prophet, later on, he uses imagery from this era of Solomon's reign to describe what God's kingdom will be like in the future. He he draws from this time in Israel's history. Listen to these words. This is Isaiah 60. The prophet says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, darkness will cover the earth and dense gloom the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you. His glory will appear Upon you, nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar. Your daughters will be carried on nurse's hip. You will see and be radiant. Your heart will tremble and be large with joy. The abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of nations will come to you. This is imagery from Solomon, the ships that brought all of that gold. A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba will come. We're going to learn about the queen of Sheba bringing all of her wealth in just a few moments. Listen to this. They will bring gold and frankincense. We know the fulfillment of that. They will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together for you. The rams of Nebaeth will minister to you. They will go up with acceptance to my altar. I shall adorn my glorious house with beautiful glory. Who are those like fly like a cloud, like doves to their lattices? Surely the coastlands will hope in me. The ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold. For the name of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, because He has adorned you with beautiful glory. Isaiah understood Solomon's extravagant wealth. This was just a glimpse of the future. This was just a little taste of what God's consummated kingdom would be like. And we flip all the way forward to the book of Revelation, the last chapters in the Bible. What do we see? This glorious picture of the new Jerusalem that one day fills the whole earth. And what is in this city? There's there's streets of gold in this city. The, the, the walls, the foundation walls of the city are made of precious stones. The gates of the city are made of pearls. 
We read in Revelation 21, the nations of earth walk by the light of the city. It says there that the kings of the earth bring their glory into it. Kings bringing their wealth and their glory into the kingdom of God. Indeed, brothers and sisters, we know from the entirety of God's word, something greater than Solomon is here. The high watermark, Israel's extravagant wealth, this is just a little taste of what you and I will experience in increasing measure as God's kingdom fully arrives. But we see also in these verses, the young Solomon prefigures Christ in terms of his worship. One verse here, chapter 9, verse 25, it's, it's nestled in all of this talk about Solomon's wealth. 9, verse 25, it says there, Three times in a year, Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar which he built to the Lord, bringing incense with them on the altar which was before the Lord. Friends, when Solomon was at his best, he led the way in worship. This is the king leading the way, setting the pace in the true worship of God, setting the tone for the people. Now, tragically, we are going to discover in our next sermon that Solomon would go on from here to fail miserably in worship. It's the great tragedy of Solomon. As he grew older, he grew more complacent, disobedient. But in these early chapters of 1 King, this is a picture of a faithful, God-fearing king. This is very encouraging. The tremendous depth of Solomon's love for God, his piety for God. And you can sense it in the prayer. Solomon loves the Lord. This isn't just going through the motions. This is genuine, sincere piety. We see it in the way that he devotes himself to the temple, to its completion, to its beautification. In terms of his reverence for God the Father, we see in the young Solomon a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ who perfectly honors the Father in heaven, and who perfectly keeps the law of Moses. And the author to the Hebrews reflects upon Jesus' piety and Jesus' total reverence for the Father. Hebrews 5, verse 7, it says that during the days of Jesus' earthly life, He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the One who could save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverence. Unlike Solomon, unlike any other earthly king, who falls short of sinless perfection, Christ is flawless. Perfect in His devotion to the Lord. Perfect in His obedience to the moral law. Jesus lived on this earth for about 33 years, and during the 33 years of His earthly ministry, He perfectly kept, perfectly fulfilled the law of God. How many of you can say that? I perfectly kept the law of God. Not even close. This is why Jesus is uniquely qualified to be our Savior and Lord. You and I, friends, are lawbreakers. We are covenant breakers. We have sinned against God. We have offended God. We have fallen short of God's glorious standards. We have trampled upon His moral law. And no matter how hard we try to obey God in our own strength, no matter how hard we try to follow the precepts of His law, we will still sin against Him. We will still break covenant with Him. But Jesus lived the perfect life. He is the perfect Savior. He is the one who takes 
my sin and your sin, and He takes it to the cross. And He nails it to the cross. He says it is paid in full. And instead of us bearing our own sin, He bears it and He imputes to us His perfect, flawless righteousness. We are saved by works. Not my work. Not your works. We're saved by the perfect work of Christ. Not only by His substitutionary death on the cross, we are saved by His perfect, obedient life. Jesus heeded the warnings of God's Word. Jesus inaugurated a kingdom of untold wealth and prosperity. Jesus honors the Father with perfect obedience to His Word and His will. Indeed, something greater than Solomon is here. We've considered so far how Israel, the high point of influence, was a prefiguring of Christ and of His eternal kingdom. We arrive now at the fourth and final point of the message. This is about Solomon's witness. Solomon's warning, Solomon's wealth, Solomon's worship. Now finally, Solomon's witness. And so let's pick up our Bibles one final time. And we will read the first 13 verses of chapter 10. Chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. It says this, Now the queen of Sheba heard the report about Solomon concerning the name of Yahweh. So she came to test him with riddles. She came to Jerusalem with a very glorious retinue with camels and carrying spices and much gold and precious stones. She came to Solomon and spoke to him about all that was in her heart. And Solomon declared to her the answer to all her matters. There was not a matter which was hidden from the king which he did not declare to her. Then the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the disposition of his attendants, their attire, his cupbearers, his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord so that there was no more spirit in her. And then she said to the king, The word is true that I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe those words until I came and my eyes had seen it. Behold, the half was not declared to me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report I heard. How blessed are your men. How blessed are those, these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Blessed be Yahweh your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because Yahweh loved Israel forever. Therefore He made you king to do justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, a very great amount of spices and precious stones. Never again did such abundance of spices come in as that which the queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. Also the ships of Hiram, which carried gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great number of almug trees and precious stones. The king made of the almug trees supports for the house of Yahweh and for the king's house, also lyres and harps for the singers. Such almug trees have not come in again, nor have they been seen to this day. Thus King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all her desire which she asked, Besides what he gave her according to his royal bounty, then she turned and went to her own land, she and her servants. Because the Lord had blessed Solomon so greatly, had blessed Solomon in so many extraordinary ways, David's royal son had become a celebrity in the ancient world. 
Solomon was a rock star in the ancient world. He was a legend even before he died. He didn't even have to wait to death to become a legend. He was a legend while he was still alive. Rumors of Solomon's wisdom, wealth, power spread far and wide. Some of these fabulous stories about Solomon's court reached the Queen of Sheba. Queen of Sheba, by the way, was a very powerful woman who ruled further south, primarily over the territory that's known today as Yemen, but also uh, parts of Ethiopia and other uh, territories that were included in her empire. She had heard stories about Solomon's greatness, but she didn't want to settle with hearsay. She said to herself, this can't possibly be true. This guy can't be possibly live up to these stories. And she says, I've got to go see it for myself. And so we read in verse 1, the queen and her entourage, they, they make this long journey to Israel to meet with Solomon. And it says to test him with riddles. She came ready with some tough questions. She said, I'm going to stump this guy. And I'm going to see how wise this man really is. I'm going to see if these legends of his wisdom are true. And uh, she shows up to make an impression of her own. We're told in verse 2, she came with a glorious retinue. There's, there's camels marching through Jerusalem. There's carrying spices. There's much gold, precious stones. There's this type of wood. Almug wood that nobody even knows what it is. But Solomon is using it to make these musical instruments. If there was any initial skepticism about Solomon when the queen left from her country, those doubts were put to rest. She sat down with him. She put her questions to him. She experienced it firsthand. And she is so impressed with what she sees and hears. We're told in verse 5, there was no spirit left in her. That, that is a Hebrew expression indicating that Solomon had left her breathless. That's what it means. She was breathless. She was, she was speechless. She didn't know what to say. Not only were the rumors true, the queen says, they didn't even tell me the half of it. This is even better than what they said. <laughs> So in verse 8, she showers Solomon with these breathless compliments. She recognizes how blessed Israel is to have Solomon as their king. But far more important than her praise of a man is her praise of the Lord. Because of Solomon's greatness, she recognizes God's greatness. She connects the dots. She says, why is this man so great? Well, it's not because of the man. Because of the man's God. Look at verse 9 and notice this Gentile queen worshiping God. Blessed be Yahweh your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel. Because Yahweh loved Israel forever, therefore He made you to be king. To do justice and righteousness. She gives all the credit where it belongs. This is God's doing. God didn't give Solomon all of this wisdom and wealth and influence to boost his own ego so he could walk around with a puffed out chest. God gave it to Solomon because God is to be glorified. He did it for his own glory. 
that the world, that the nations around Israel would see in Israel's king the unsurpassed worth and glory of Israel's God. And so this, friends, was a large part of Israel's witness to that generation to show the nations of earth, the Gentile nations, this is what it looks like to walk in covenant with God. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to joyfully submit to the moral law of the Lord. Now, friends, we live today in the New Covenant era. We are Christians in the New Covenant. We still have a mission to accomplish today. Foreign missions in the New Covenant is primarily a matter of go and tell. Primarily a matter of go and tell. It is a matter of taking the gospel to the streets, to the nations of earth. That's our mission in the New Covenant. Great Commission, it says, Go and make disciples of nations. Let's go and tell. In the old covenant era, in the time of King Solomon, missions was primarily come and see. In the old covenant, missions was primarily come and see. It was first and foremost an invitation for the nations of earth to come to Jerusalem, to pray in the temple court, to see for themselves the glory and greatness of the Lord. And so Solomon's greatness was part of Israel's witness to the world. And again here we see in King Solomon a foreshadowing of better things to come. You know, friends, the spiritual, the prophetic significance of the queen's visit was not lost on the Lord Jesus. In fact, Jesus brings this story up on one occasion when the Pharisees and the scribes are attacking him. And they're saying, Jesus, why don't you show us a sign? I mean, how many signs does Jesus have to show them to satisfy them? Show us another one, Jesus. We read in Matthew 12, verse 38, these words from the Lord Jesus. He said, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Jesus answered them, An evil, adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Does Jesus owe our generation signs and wonders and miracles? No. He doesn't owe us a thing. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. No sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Listen to this. Jesus says, the queen of the south, that is, the queen of Sheba, will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear Solomon's wisdom. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. In his confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus points these points them to the stories that are in their own Bible. Israel's mission to the Gentile nations. The story of Jonah being sent as a missionary to Nineveh. The story of the Queen of Sheba who travels all of that distance to come to Jerusalem and to seek the truth. And according to Jesus, both of those missionary encounters had a positive outcome. In spite of Jonah's bad attitude, 
He says, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Some of you guys wish I preached ser- sermons that short. 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And what happens? The whole, the whole city repents. The whole city dresses in sackcloth and ashes and repents. The queen of Sheba endures all this inconvenience in her determination to meet Solomon and hear the depths of her wisdom. Here is Christ. A prophet infinitely greater than Jonah. A king infinitely greater than Solomon. Not even the top echelon of Israel's religious elite can tell who he is. Or will admit it. Because their hearts are harder than rock. Jesus points them to their own scripture and he indicts them. The story of this Gentile queen. And just think of this. A Gentile queen of all people. Who will one day stand in the judgment room. And by her very presence in that room. Will condemn every person who has rejected Jesus as king. For while Solomon may have been the wisest king who has ever lived. Jesus Christ is God's wisdom incarnate. Wisdom incarnate. Wisdom and righteousness from God. The day is coming, friend. When you and I will be raised from the dead, you will be raised from the dead, like it or not, buried or cremated. You will be raised from the dead. You will be summoned to appear before the judgment throne of Christ. He will raise you from the grave on that last day. He will raise the body of every single person who has ever lived and breathed and walked on this planet. And the men of Nineveh are going to be there. And the queen of Sheba is going to be there. And the scribes are going to be there. And the Pharisees are going to be there. You are going to be there. And I am going to be there. And the outcome of that final appointment with God will depend totally upon your relationship to the king and the judge before whom you will appear. Did you repent of sin? Did you repent of sin, as did the men of Nineveh, and seek God's mercy? Did the unsurpassed wisdom and majesty of Christ leave you speechless as it did the queen of Sheba on the day that she met Solomon? It would be said of you that the day you met Christ, there was no spirit in you. You were breathless, speechless. Or did you respond to the King of glory like the scribes and the Pharisees of old? Lord, give me one more sign and then I'll believe. Do this for me, God, and then I'll do something for you. Or maybe you you just thought, well, I have more time. I have more time. I'm going to seek my kingdom for a while. Later on when I have more time, later on when I'm retired, then I will seek your kingdom. But not now. Something greater than Solomon is here. If you reject this king, if you refuse to bow the knee before this king while there is still breath in your lungs and blood coursing through your veins, friend, you may find yourself on the day of judgment face to face with the queen of Sheba. And she will be there in the judgment hall not to welcome you, but to condemn you. 
The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Long ago, the Lord gave a promise and a warning to King Solomon. Today, he extends a promise and a warning to you and to me. The promise of salvation through his only begotten son. And a warning. We must pay closer attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift from it. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every transgression and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation?